three weeks off for me. Let's see if I still know what to do up here. We are starting a new series today called Joy in All Things. And I can't think of a better worship song to lead into this series than It Is Well With My Soul. We're going to be in the book of Philippians over the next nine weeks. And I think what you're going to find is this is going to be a lot lighter scripture than we have been in. We're just coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming off of a bunch of kind of one-off messages. But really, the book of Philippians is encouraging. It might be a little bit lighter in tone, but it is no less profound. The big theme for the book of Philippians is joy. Paul says joy and rejoice 16 times in this letter. And he doesn't say it from a cruise boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, all right? I don't know if they had them back then. They'd probably be made of wood or something. But Paul is saying rejoice. Paul is saying find joy. Being on house arrest in Rome, not knowing if he's going to get to go free or if he's going to get executed. And so everything we read for the next nine weeks is in the lens of that of uncertainty, of not knowing the wind and the waves that life is going to throw at you. And still Paul says, rejoice, find joy. Life is not always going to be easy. And I will promise you this, if life is easy right now, give it four weeks. It won't be. If you are in a good season right now, Prepare yourself because the storm is coming. Life is just a series of going from one storm to the next. But we have something that the world doesn't. We have something that in the midst of something as bad as house arrest, which could lead to your execution, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of life, or in the midst of death, we have something to cling to. When our family lives get rough, when our marriages get rough, when parenting gets rough, when being an employee gets rough, when just being alive and being a human gets rough, we have something that the world doesn't, and that is Jesus And so for the next nine weeks, Paul is saying, find hope, rejoice, take joy in King Jesus. Now, this book of Philippians, it starts off in Acts 16. And so really to get the full effect of exactly what's going on here, we have to go to the book of Acts. And I'll just kind of paraphrase it as best as I can. Paul and Silas come across a young man named Timothy. Timothy loves Jesus. Why does Timothy love Jesus? Because he's got a bad-to-the-bone mama and he's got a bad-to-the-bone grandma that raised him up to love Jesus. And so Timothy goes to help Paul and Silas. And then Paul's like, hey, guys, I don't know where we're going next. And Paul's not necessarily the guy that you look to for leadership and think he's not going to have an answer. That's like if you showed up to work one day and you asked your boss, hey, what do you want me to do? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. You're here, and I'm glad you're here. You're still on the clock. You're still getting paid, but I just don't know. And so Paul doesn't know. They try to go north. They try to go west. They try to go south. And the Spirit of Jesus blocks their way each and every way. And then Paul goes to sleep one night, and he has a vision. And in this vision, it's a vision of a Macedonian man saying, Paul, come here. We need your help. Come to Macedonia. And so Paul wakes up the next morning and says, all right, boys, I know where we're going. And just like that, Silas and Timothy, they take off with Paul, and they end up in this town called Philippi, named after Philip II, part of this Roman Empire. Anyways, when they get there, you would think they'd find this guy. This guy in the dream, right? This guy with the Macedonian call saying, saying, Paul, come and help us out. 
But that's not what they find. And so my question for you today is what do a successful business-owning CEO type A woman, a demon-possessed, enslaved, fortune-telling girl with supernatural powers and a jailer have in common? The thing that they have in common is that they ran into Paul. Paul shared the gospel with them. They gave their lives to Jesus. And then two out of the three of them got baptized. It is that ragtag group of people in Acts 16 that start the church in Philippi. That day, three people were added to the kingdom of heaven. That day, kingdom came down to earth in form of God's people coming together in godly and Christian community, founded on Jesus to plant a church. And it was a beautiful thing. And so as we talk about this letter that Paul is writing to the Philippians, this church in Philippi, some time has taken place since that point. And we see that when we dive in Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles, it's going to be kind of towards the back, not all the way towards the back. If you hit maps too far, hit Revelations too scary, just keep going back. Eventually you'll get there. All right, right after Galatians and Ephesians. Here we go. Philippians 1, 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Jesus who are at Philippi. So they went from three to all the saints with the overseers and the deacons. Now they have church leadership. Some growth has taken place between Paul's first visit to Philippi until this point. And then verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First point this morning, if you are taking notes, and I encourage you to do it because these are hot notes this morning. Peace comes from God by grace through Jesus. Peace comes from God by grace through Jesus. We see it right there, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Paul knows as he is addressing the saints, Paul knows that if you want peace, you first must experience God's grace. How do you experience God's grace? You realize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you lay your life over to Jesus. Who is Paul addressing in this letter? He is addressing the saints. That is not a football team in New Orleans. If you are of a Catholic background, it might have a different connotation to you just based off of what you were raised in. It is not some kind of super Christian. This is not Jesus's Avengers, okay? This is just normal Christians in the church, people that are broken, messed up, but people that have received God's grace through the life and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And through that, they've been put back together. They've been wiped clean, and they went from death to life, from broken to made new, made whole, restored. Now they went from sinners to saints. So if you want to experience peace, then you first have to experience grace, the grace that God pours out through the life of his son Jesus because of his love for you. So if there's a void of peace in your life this morning, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what your week has looked like. I don't know what your Saturday night looked like. If there's no peace, it could be that you haven't experienced grace. If you haven't experienced grace, 
You need to know that that only comes through Jesus. We want you to experience grace. We see that Paul, he loves these people, and he is writing to them joyfully. We see that Philippians 1, 3 through 11. We start in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now let me say, having been a pastor, or at least a lead pastor, person that has a little bit more responsibility than the youth guy, um, a little more responsibility than the family guy, and trying to figure out what exactly this looks like. This is an awesome place for Paul to be able to write. This is not a place of heavy correction. If you read the other epistles, that's a big fancy word. Uh, makes you sound smart. It just means letters that Paul wrote to other churches, usually out of correction. Philippians is not out of correction. I think he, he approaches to correct one, maybe two minor issues in the church in this letter. This is a letter of encouragement. And the tone is warm. The tone is friendly. The tone is loving. The tone is encouraging. And what is Paul doing? He is remembering his people fondly. You want to know what happened to Paul while he was in Philippi? This is really sweet. He goes into town. He meets Lydia. Lydia is a young business owner. She is well-to-do. She sells purple goods, all kinds of stuff that's purple, okay? It's not blue. It's not red. It's a mix. That's what she sold, purple things. That's what the Bible says. She's doing good. She's doing so good that she actually has a house that once the church forms together, they're able to meet in her home. He also comes against somebody else, a young lady, younger than Lydia. And this woman is demon-possessed. And because this woman is demon-possessed, this demon is allowing her to see people's futures. It is allowing her and giving her this ability to tell fortunes. And so some rough-and-tumble guys, they take note of that. And they enslave her. And she is held captive. And then Paul and Silas show up in the town, and she follows them around. And these demons can't help but to testify the truth and who Paul and Silas actually are. Everybody around, gather around. These men are here to teach the true way. They're here to give true salvation. Nobody had ever heard it, especially from the woman that they all knew was demon-possessed but played in their favor. And so what does Paul do? This is super, I don't know, man. Maybe this is just Paul. I love the Bible. It's super kooky sometimes. <laughs> They're walking around town for two days, right? That lady's following him for two days. And it says, Paul gets so annoyed that this demon-possessed woman is following him around, basically just shouting out to everybody on Twitter all day long, the boys are back in town, everybody. Oh, snap, I wasn't ready for that. Thank you. That was beautiful. Man, I love y'all even... Oh, man, I'm feeling like Paul. I got a warm, warm feeling for you in my heart right now. Boys are back in town. All right, I'm not going to sing. What does Paul do? He gets annoyed. This woman's been following him in Silas for two days, and he turns around and he casts the demon out of this woman. He just did it because he was annoyed. I think that's crazy. Now, I've, seen, I've seen some things in my life. I've seen some demon-possessed people. I've seen some demons cast out of people. Never once in my life have I seen it happen because somebody was annoyed. <laughs> that's Paul. He's different. Her captors, the people that enslaved her, they are very, very upset. All right, so what do they do? They go after Paul. 
they meet him in the town square, and they beat the mess out of him and Silas. And that is the point where they meet the third person of this church. And he is the jailer. They hand him over to the jailer. They take him into the innermost part of this prison. They say, whatever you do, make sure that these guys don't get out of here. About midnight, Paul and Silas are still up. I don't know if you just don't sleep in prison. Uh, I don't know too many people that have been there. Um, But I don't think I'd sleep very well. They're up. It's midnight. They're singing. They are praying. And an earthquake happens. And this earthquake takes all the doors off the wall. It takes all the shackles off of the people. And then the jailer wakes up. You know the one that they say, whatever happens, make sure these two guys don't get out because they're causing a ruckus in town. And he realizes all the prisoners are gone. And he takes his sword and he's about to end his life. And Paul says, hey, 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 hold up. We're still here. They share the gospel with him. He comes to know the Lord. Him and his whole family get baptized just like Lydia and her whole family. Paul remembers them fondly. And so to say that Paul remembers them fondly, he is remembering not just the church, but he is remembering his time in Philippi. And he's not thinking about all the horrible things that happened to him. He's not thinking of the beating he got in town square. He's not thinking of the annoying demon-possessed lady or her captors. He's not thinking of their time in prison where the guard almost committed suicide, where the Lord could have delivered them but had a bigger plan, which was an eternal life for that guard and his family. They remember it fondly. And I think we can take something from that. We can look back on our lives and we can pick up on the valleys. Or we can look back in our lives and we can see where God got us through the valleys so that we could reach the peaks and to be closer to him, to experience him more, at least more happily. His presence is the same in the valleys and the peaks. And he prays for them. Paul prays for them with joy, not with heartache. And Paul realizes this when he says, I thank you that you have helped advance the gospel. He realizes that the gospel is not advanced alone. Paul is like a superhero of the faith. This is the guy that you want out there. This is the guy you want sharing the gospel. Churches are started. People get saved. People get baptized when this guy comes around. But he's saying, no, it's not just me. You have taken part in this too. You have been the church. You have displayed the kingdom. Keep it going. Don't just rely on me to do this. Philippians 6 through 8. Philippians 1, 6 through 8. We didn't just skip five chapters. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I hope throughout this series you are able to pick up on the joy in Paul's life. You are able to decipher the ways that Paul goes about receiving that joy, finding that joy in his life. Joy is not happiness. It does not fade away. I also hope you pick up on how much Paul loves this church. And I want to say just as much as Paul loves the church in Philippi, I love you guys. This church loves itself, each other, and the people that are in the community that come to be a part of this. You are dear. I hold you dear in my heart. It is an honor to be your pastor. 
it's a little crazy sometimes. Some of you are harder to pastor than others. <laughs> Janet, you laugh first, all right? <laughs> it's a deep, deep joy, a deep honor of mine. And I hope that when times do get tough, that you reach out. When things go sideways in life, that you realize you're not alone. That there is joy to be found. And sometimes you get in such a dark place, it's, fine, it's hard to find that joy. I hope you know that you're not alone in that. That Jesus is present. He is beside you in that. But you also have a church family that wants to gather around you. You guys are loved. What is it that is Paul's primary concern for the people that he loves? What is Paul's primary concern for his loved ones in the church of Philippi? I would say it is the primary concern of any pastor, any church planter, any missionary to any church, to any congregation anywhere in the world. And that is spiritual growth in Jesus. We see it. Verse 6, he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus begins a work in you the point you surrender your life to him. The point you realize that you cannot do it on your own and in your own strength anymore. And Jesus continues that work in your life. Each day you wake up, you become more and more like him until you die. That is justification to sanctification to glorification. What is the work? The work is Jesus making you more like him. The work is you denying your flesh more and more and more every day. The work is you being less and less independent, less and less self-reliant, and more and more dependent on Jesus. That you would operate more and more out of the Spirit every single day. That one thing that your wife said to you that you want to just pop off and put a nail in the coffin of that argument? You want to know if you're becoming more and more like Jesus? When your wife says that thing that drove you crazy and you've got the perfect line, you're more and more like Jesus. If in that moment, you hold your tongue. What about when you're done with your kids at the end of a long day? You just can't anymore. Well, when you realize you can't, but you realize that the love of Jesus and the Holy Spirit inside of you can, guess what? You're becoming more and more like him. You are denying yourself less of you, more of Jesus. What about the workplace? When you could just cut that corner, or you could just tell that white lie, and it would cover your butt, and it would cover your team's butt, or it would just make the work so much easier. Well, when you don't, when you stand on the side of truth, when you have character that is not of this world but is built on Jesus, the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of righteousness, and even though you messed up, you fess up to it. That is a life that is more like Jesus, and that is less like you. That is the work, less of us, more of him. But there's something about that work. That work takes pruning. That work takes prying. That work takes crushing for it to come to completion. I think a lot of times we give our lives to Jesus in, in a very Joel Osteen kind of way. We're just like, all right, everything is going to be good from here on out. I'm going to get the Lambo. I'm going to get the house. I'm going to get the promotion at work. Shoot, I might even just get a better job. That's not what the Bible says anywhere. No, Jesus promises that if you follow me, it will be harder for you. There will be suffering. And what happens in that suffering? In that suffering, there's crushing. And that crushing, if it works right, brings you to the feet of Jesus. That crushing, if it works right, 
leads you to a place where you know that you can't do it anymore. That crushing, if it works right, helps you realize that you are in over your head. And it makes you turn to the person that is not. And that person is only Jesus. This is, it's been a season in our church. It's been a tough season. There's been a lot of things to mourn. There's been a lot of things to walk through. It has been a season of crushing. We have two options. We can run into it. Fight in the trenches of it with our people that are hurting. Or we can turn away from it and pretend it's not there. And my prayer for this church is that we would never be the congregation that sees somebody hurting and turns away, but that we would love, that we would meet people in the midst of their despair. I don't care how bad it gets. And that through that, through that crushing, that's not only taking place in their life, but you are inheriting that as well, that they would experience Jesus, that they would experience love like the world does not offer that they would experience true life and something that is different. And that through that, that, we don't turn our backs on God, we don't shake our fist at God, but we realize that he is in control. And if we rely on him, he will work all things, not just to our good, but for the good of the kingdom and for others around us. There is a purpose. We were not supposed to live this life on our own, so let the crushing commence. We were meant to live in relationship with God. We weren't meant to live in our own strength, but out of his. And we were meant to live dependent on his grace. So let's live dependent on that grace, especially if we want peace. This crushing, this spiritual growth is a lot like raising kids. What is the point of raising kids? If you don't know, it's just to get them out of your house, okay? Uh, let me put that a little bit better. I love my kids. Almost every day I love my kids. They're awesome. They're the best. For me, I don't want your kids, all right? I love my kids. But our goal as parents is to grow two mature believers in Jesus, to grow two mature adults that are young women that can survive, that can get out in the world on their own. I want them to be adults one day, fully mature, on their own, productive members of society. You know what you don't want for your kids? At least what I hope you don't want for your kids, and that is for them to live at your house the rest of their lives. If that's the case, I'm putting a tent in the backyard. You don't want them eating all of your food for the rest of your life. You don't want them soaking up all of your resources for the rest of your life. And I know there are circumstances. I know there are seasons. Look, I've gone back home a couple times too. And I was met with love. And I was met with embrace. And I was met with a lot better cooking than what I was able to put together on my own. We don't want our children to be full-grown adult bodies with the mentality with the mindset, with the maturity, and with the spiritual maturity of babies, adults walking around in diapers. It's the same way that Paul is talking to the church in Philippi. I desire to see Jesus bring you to a point of completion. I desire for you to grow in Jesus. 
That is the purpose of all of this. I don't want you to get to heaven one day and come face to face with Jesus and realize that you're at the same place in heaven than when you first invited him into your heart. When you first started following him, I don't want you to just get in by the skin of your teeth. No, I want you to show up fully grown, fully mature, crushed, but through the crushing, through the pruning, stronger and more dependent on him. Philippians 9 through 11, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 11 here concludes Paul's thanksgiving and prayer to this church in Philippi. And in all of this, and everything that Paul just stated, we see our second point this morning, and that is that the goal is growth and love through Jesus. The goal is growth in love through Jesus. If we are going to grow, it is going to be in love, and it is going to be in a few other things. But those things matter far less than love. So if you claim to be a believer in here this morning, then ask yourself, where is the love in my life? Can other people spot the love in my life? Verse 9 points out that Jesus wants a love in us that grows more and more and more and more. How can we say that we've experienced God's grace, that we've experienced God's love if we never extend it to other people? And Paul's not just talking about loving the easy people here, all right? It's easy to love the sweet little old ladies at church. And look, we don't have any here, okay? I think 23 is the oldest, okay? It's hard to love the people that are hard to love, that are difficult, that always have something to say, that always have an opinion that isn't from the Spirit, but is from the flesh. We're called to love each other in the darkest moments of life, in the hardest moments of life, when someone else is just being an absolute jerk, we're called to love. So love and grow more and more in love, not just to the easy, but to those that are hard to love. Paul also says that we grow in knowledge and discernment to approve what is excellent. I think, especially nowadays, it's very easy. We talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount it is very easy to be fooled by false teaching. There are a lot of beautiful red apples that are out there that are poison on the inside. Paul is saying, as you grow in love and you love more and more, also grow in knowledge and discernment. What Sterling said last week, study the real deal so that you can, that you can see, that you can spot the counterfeit. Jesus wants us to grow in our knowledge of him so that we can make a distinction between what is the flesh, what is evil, what is in the spirit, what is good, where is God calling me to that is great, and what is the world calling me to that is camouflaged as good, and it's tricking me. Now, what does God really want for me? And as we grow in Jesus, we will be able to more easily discern what is excellent, and as we discern it, we'll be able to improve it, to embrace it, and then to act on it. And then in verse 10, Paul says, you will also grow in purity and in blamelessness. Again, when Jesus comes back, he doesn't want us to be in the same place of sin in our lives that he set us free from the moment that we put our faith in him. And so if you've been following Jesus for some time, 
How is your holiness? How is your purity? How is your blamelessness? Are you still struggling with the same old sin? Do we still have the same old habits, the same old hang-ups, the same old addictions in our lives? We were called to die to sin. We were not called to manage it. But so often, the enemy creeps in. He says, no, you're not as bad as everybody else. No, you just, just manage this. Just be a little bit better than everyone else, and you'll earn God's love. And we know that we couldn't. It was earned for us. He also says that we will grow in fruit of righteousness. And once again, if you hear anything today, you'll hear this over and over in this church, that it's not about us. It's not about what we can do. This is not for us. This is about Jesus. This is about what he did. It's about what he's doing in our lives. And it's about how we take part in this alongside him because he restores us and gives us a role within it. Fruit of righteousness is not something that we can muster up. It is action, it is character that takes place because of Jesus inside of us in the Holy Spirit. And its sole purpose is to glorify God so that others can experience God and in turn glorify Him. Our works are not for our praise. Our works are for God so that others can see, know, and follow Him. And in all of this, in all of these things that Paul says, as you grow spiritually, you grow in these things. The end goal in all of it is that our love would express itself in wise actions that benefit other people for the glory of God. If you want people to come to know Jesus, you live like that. If you want to live a life like Jesus, you live like that. That is how we are the church. That is how we display the kingdom. Then we come to our last chunk of scripture here, Philippians 12 through 18. In this, Paul is now discussing that although the Philippian church is distressed over his imprisonment in Rome, it's actually been better for the gospel. Philippians 1, 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What Paul is saying here is bad things in life still advance the good news of Jesus. Paul realizes that this Philippian church is very concerned, right? This is the guy we want out on the court. He's like the I almost said LeBron. I would ask for forgiveness for that. He's the Michael Jordan of the faith. He's the goat. We need this guy out there so that God can use him. But what does Paul do? He encourages them. God has purpose in this too. The bad things that are happening in my life, God is using in this too. While I've been in prison, the whole imperial guard the whole praetorium is what it's called, knows that I'm in here for Jesus. They know what I'm about. Some of those people are starting to accept Jesus. How is that? Every six hours, they would switch out guards, all right? Paul is on house arrest, right? His imprisonment, he is imprisoned to a home, much like we were all of 2020. That was voluntary on our parts. It's not voluntary on his part. They switch out guards every six hours. Every six hours, a guard hears the good news of Jesus until the entire praetorium, every guard that is in that area in Rome, hears about the good news 
of Jesus. Now, Paul is trying to encourage them. You think you want me out on the court right now. You think you want me out there. But no, God is using me in here. God has a plan in here. You want just the good times for me because you think that's all that God can use. But no, God is using the bad times right here. And through this, God also used it to make the other followers of Jesus in the church of Philippi less scared. They were like, oh man, Paul's just in prison for the gospel? That's it? He's just on house arrest? We thought if we went out and shared the gospel, they'd kill us. But we're going to go share the gospel, and it's not going to be anywhere near to as good as Paul probably shared the gospel, but the Holy Spirit's going to use it. And if they're just going to put us on house arrest, that's fine. They're not going to kill us? Sweet. Let's go share the gospel. And so because of the bad times in Paul's life, more people heard the good news of Jesus. Not only that, but it strengthened and it gave courage to the Christians that needed it. And God uses the bad times in our lives too. And again, it's in the crushing. It's in the pruning that he makes us more like Jesus, his son. And that is the purpose. Know that your pain, know that your suffering is not overlooked. Know that it's not just a thing that God's allowing to happen in your life and he is never going to put it to work. No, I can tell you, through the divorces that I've been through as a kid, that God put people in my life that had gone through the same thing. I can tell you with the, the anxiety and the depression that I deal with in my life, that God has put people that deal with that same thing in my life. And because I have been crushed over and over and over and over again, and because I turned to Jesus in that, and he saw me out of it out of the valley, back up to the peak, and then I tripped and I fell down the mountain again. Because of that, God uses it so that I can help other people find Jesus in that same stage. God will use your suffering. Because of that, we can take joy in suffering. We close out with this, 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in, in, in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. See, what we have here is we have some people preaching the right gospel with the wrong heart. We have some people preaching the right gospel with the right heart. And Paul is overjoyed. In that, I rejoice because the gospel is being preached. Now, a false gospel is not being preached. We also know that Paul, not a big fan of the Judaizers who took the pure gospel and added the law to it. No, we're not supposed to take away from the gospel. We're not supposed to add to it. But because this gospel that these people are preaching is pure, whether it's out of the wrong heart, whether it's out of a competitive heart, we don't know why they were trying to get back at Paul by preaching the gospel. Maybe they thought they were just going to stick a knife in his pride. Some people think it's because Paul was not eloquent. He couldn't talk. He had a severe problem with speaking, as we see in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Others think it's because he was always in the valley. He was always weak. He was always helpless. He was always ultra-dependent on Jesus. Maybe some people that thought they were better than him because of that were like, you know what, now we're going to share the gospel. We're going to build up our following. 
We're going to take away from yours. And in all of it, Paul saw right through it. He said, this is all absolutely nonsense. Third and final point this morning is that our priority is that Jesus is made known. Jesus is made known. Don't compromise on the gospel. Paul summarizes the entire gospel up with about 70 commas in one sentence in the book of Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. That's three verses for one sentence. I love it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Don't take anything away from that. Don't add anything else to that. There's about to be another church in this community. We will not be the sole true gospel presence in this community. I realize there are religious organizations around us. I am talking about the gospel, not something that has been added to it to make it more about us. I'm not talking about something that has been twisted into false teaching. I'm talking about the true gospel. We have another church coming to town that is going to be the true gospel. And I tell you what, it's going to be fancier. It's going to be bigger. And I've seen that parking lot. It's a sweet parking lot. It might look like six flags over Jesus, but I will tell you this. It is the gospel, and it is a kingdom-minded church. And just because they do church differently than we do, we are not at odds with each other. We are not rivals with each other. I do not care. I do care that a false gospel is preached in our community. What I do not care about is another church preaching the right gospel. Let's band together. Let's make our priority that Jesus is made known. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we need you. And Jesus, I thank you as a pastor for this church. Jesus, I thank you what you are doing in the hearts of these people. And I pray that we would experience your peace, because we have experienced your grace, because we are no longer sinners, but saints. Jesus, for those that do not know you this morning, I pray that you would call them into relationship with you, that they would see their need for you, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves. And God, in your love for us, that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for us, that we would be made clean, we would be put back whole, we would be in right relationship with you when we put our faith in him. I pray that for the people that don't know you yet this morning, and for the people that have given their lives to you this morning, or that want to pursue that, and then for the believer that's been in this church, that's been a believer or in a church maybe since they were born. Jesus, I pray that we would grow spiritually and that that, that that growth would look like love in our lives, that we would love more and more, that we would not be the same person we were the day that you saved us, but that on the other end of this thing, through the suffering, through the pain, through the crushing, that we would come face to face with you stronger, 
more mature. And Jesus, I pray that we would not be cowards, but in confidence in the gospel that has saved us, that we would preach it, that we would proclaim it, that we would tell it, and at least that we would invite somebody to hear it. Make us bold, Lord. Let our priority be that this community, that our families, that our workplaces, the places we find ourselves come to know you because of your saving grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.